0: Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. In the U.S., June is LGBTQ Pride Month. I had hoped to deliver a Pride-themed episode of Tatter that month, but it wasn't until early July that I could interview the person I had in mind. Still, I'm delighted to feature our conversation in this episode. Now, who is this guest? Well, on May 4th, Claire Chrétien published an article at LifeSiteNews.com. LifeSiteNews.com says its writers and founders, quote, have come to understand that respect for life and family are endangered by an international conflict. That conflict is between radically opposed views of the worth and dignity of every human life and of family life and community. It has been caused by secularists attempting to eliminate Christian morality and natural law principles which are seen as the primary obstacles to implementing their new world order." In her article, Chrétien quotes from an interview with Austin Ruse, whom she describes as an international pro-life leader. The article is largely about a specific Catholic priest who has been critical of homophobia and who has advocated for the church treating gay people with respect. Speaking of that priest, Ruse says he is misleading young men and women and putting them at risk of, quote, stepping into a life that will only lead to heartache, sometimes disease, sometimes death, and even damnation, end quote. I did not interview Chrétien or Ruse. Instead, I interviewed this dangerous priest to whom they referred. I interviewed the Jesuit priest, Father James Martin. Among the hotbeds of secularism on which Father Jim has appeared are NPR's Fresh Air, PBS's The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, and Comedy Central's Colbert Report, where he was unofficially dubbed chaplain of the show. Martin is editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine America, as well as multiple books, including Building a Bridge, How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. And now he's come to tatter. This episode is titled Moats and Bridges.
1: Uh, I grew up in a, not a small town, but a suburb of Philadelphia called Plymouth Meeting. Yep. And I grew up in a Catholic family. Was not particularly religious, nor were my parents or my family. Did not go to Catholic schools, went to Penn. Uh, And that was uh, at the Wharton School of Business as an undergrad. took a job at GE in 1982, way back when, and enjoyed it, but gradually started to feel like I was in the wrong place. And one night, I I came home and turned on the television set, and there was a documentary about the Trappist monk Thomas Merton playing. Mm -hmm. And that started me thinking about... Well, at first, I I read his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, and that started think making me think about doing something else with my life because I was pretty miserable and his way just seemed a lot more interesting and that led eventually to the jesuits so you know I would say my vocation came from television
0: <laughs> and so uh you um oh while you were were speaking, I I looked something up. So you have something in common with Donald Trump then, uh, because he also went to the Wharton (laughs) School of of, of Business, but uh, we needn't dwell on that.
1: He also went to uh, Fordham University for two years, which was uh, a Jesuit school. Yes, he did.
0: Uh, I think Uh, it's fair to say that it didn't take in his case.
1: I think that is fair to say.
0: So you mentioned uh, the Society of uh, Jesus uh, or the Jesuits, and I have to confess, I have very little knowledge of the various orders of the Catholic Church. I was actually just thinking uh, this weekend that when I think of uh, Jesuits and Dominicans, I, I, I imagine a, re- a sort of revision of West Side Story where the Jets and Sharks are replaced with the Jesuits and Dominicans. But, but to be serious... In a nutshell, what are some things that are distinctive about the Jesuits, either in terms of doctrine or style or interests?
1: I think it's mainly style and interest. The doctrine's the same. Uh, We're all Catholic. The Jesuits were founded in 1540 by St. Ignatius, um, and we basically have a very broad-minded spirituality that enables us to, in the sort of popular term, find God in all things. So that means you can find us in pretty much any kind of ministry. We're very much out in, quote-unquote, the world. We're not monastic. We're not cloistered. We're not associated with any one particular ministry. But in the United States, people would know us best for our educational ministries. And so in New England, for example, uh, Boston College, Boston College High School in Maine, uh, Cheveris High School Mm -hmm. in Portland, Maine, uh, as well as a number of parishes in Portland. So uh, mainly uh, colleges, universities, high schools... Uh, but also um, retreat centers, uh Eastern Point Retreat House in Gloucester, Mass. I'm being very New England-centric. I entered the New England province, actually, so I know it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the Jesuit Refugee Service. And, uh, you know, gosh, I mean, there are Jesuits who are physicians and social activists and lawyers and astronomers and uh one of my closest friends is the Catholic chaplain at San Quentin. So hmm. really, wherever the church is or wherever the – actually, uh, something where the church is not, I know, where the church needs to be, that's where the Jesuits are.
0: I want to talk about your book titled Building a Bridge, mm-hmm. how the Catholic Church and the LGBT community can enter into a relationship of respect, compassion, and sensitivity – I know from early in the book that you were spurred to write the book, at least in part, b- by the mass shooting uh, at a gay nightclub, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Can you walk us through the process of deciding to write this book?
1: Sure. Well, I have been a Jesuit for 30 years, at least this year, um, and a priest for 20 years. And like most Jesuits and most priests, I'd ministered to LGBT people uh, rather informally. I'd written some articles about LGBT stuff in America Magazine, where I work, and a few other places, but I'd never really done anything formal. Uh, When the Pulse nightclub massacre happened, as you mentioned, uh, I noticed, however, that very few bishops and archbishops said anything in terms of expressing compassion or sympathy, Uh, unlike other mass shootings or public tragedies, where the bishops are, you know, rightly, uh, people who come out and say, we're praying for you, we're with you. And I was pretty upset that more bishops didn't say anything, and it just seemed so obvious why. It was because, you know, it was mostly gay people who were killed, I think maybe all gay people. Mm -hmm. And it just dawned on me that even in death, LGBT people are largely invisible in the Church. And so I did a Facebook video that got a lot of hits. And that led to an invitation from a group called New Ways Ministry that advocates and ministers to LGBT people to give a talk. Um, And the name of the uh, award, actually, they gave me um, that that occasioned the talk is the Bridge Building Award. And that led to this idea of sort of building bridges, which led to the book. And, you know, things kind of took off from there. I really didn't expect the book was going to be so controversial, frankly, because it's a pretty mild book. But um, you know, so be it. I mean, talking about respect and welcome to LGBT people is, in fact, <laughs> is in fact controversial in the church.
0: In the book, you urge the church to treat the LGBT the LGBT community with quote respect, compassion, and sensitivity end quote. Can you elaborate on what that means, or give some examples of what you mean and I would be especially curious to know which specific elements of what you were calling for there have proven controversial.
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, That phrase, respect, compassion, and sensitivity comes right from the catechism. And so what I try to do is unpack those words. You know, respect, for example, is something as simple as, uh, you know, using the term LGBT, right? I mean, I think that's part of respect, uh, you know, calling people what they want to be called. Respect is Uh, you know, treating LGBT people as valuable people who have gifts to offer the Church. I think compassion is seeing them in their complexity and looking at the ways that they've suffered in the Church, and sensitivity is really being sensitive to, you know, what what language we use and and, and how do we treat them. What's been controversial? I think pretty much the whole thing. I, I think that there are so many people in the Church still, unfortunately, who are homophobic and who, for whom the idea of, you know, uh, extending welcome to LGBT people means extending welcome to someone who's sinful. That's basically how people see it. And the first thing we have to do is tell them that they're sinful, Uh, you know, which is ridiculous because we do that with no other group. We ask no other group to have their sexual lives put under a, a microscope like that. And, you know, frankly, um, I often use the example of college kids. I mean most college kids these days are sexually active, but if I read a book about outreach to college kids, people wouldn't freak out and say you're you're dealing with a group of sinners. Right. But that's what we do with LGBT people. They are seen only and exclusively as sinful. So it's really, you know, it's it's a real sort of example of homophobia in our culture.
0: Well, as you just mentioned that reference to respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Uh, is It's a reference to the catechism to number 2358 specifically. Mm-hmm. And well, as an atheist who grew up Baptist, I had never had occasion mm-hmm. to look at the catechism, but I'm mm-hmm. glad I did. And so there is that uh, reference. And also the catechism uh, refers to, it says every sign of unjust discrimination uh, should be avoided. But if you don't mind, I want to actually read the entire On text of twenty three fifty eight, and it says, "Yeah, sure thing." "Uh, The number of men and women who have deep seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial, Uh, so a difficulty. Uh, They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided these persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives. And if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, the the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. So on the one hand, there is some stuff there that from the perspective of LGBT people could be seen as affirming. So respect, compassion, and sensitivity, avoid unjust discrimination. But there's some other stuff there So reference to their condition, their condition being objectively disordered, that cuts the other way. And so what would you say to someone who says that in its entirety, that catechism is actually problematic?
1: Well, I I meet a lot of LGBT people like that. I think the first thing to recognize is that when we talk about church teaching, everybody talks about church teaching. Church teaching is first and foremost the Gospels. Right, And it's, in, it's encountering Jesus in the Gospels. It's encountering the Jesus who is in the Gospels, because we Christians believe he's alive and risen and present to us in the Spirit. Um, so to look first at Jesus and what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. And the first thing he teaches is love, right? Love, mercy. He also reaches out to people who are on the margins, right? So, I mean, that, that's, I mean, that goes without saying. I mean, uh, tax collectors and Roman centurions and, you know, everybody who was seen, as uh, you know, people who had uh, sicknesses and prostitutes and everybody. Everybody who was seen as on the outs. Jesus goes to. So that's the essential part. And then you look at the catechism and, you know, what do I tell people? I say, well, uh, you have to understand the church teaching, you have to understand the gospels, and you also have to use your conscience too in trying to understand these things. But it is true. Many LGBT people, if not most, really have a hard time with those words, intrinsically or objectively disordered, which is a kind of, uh, particular theological language that doesn't mean, it basically means they are not ordered towards, um, you know, childbearing. That's basically what that means, you know, mm-hmm. couples. And, you know, to to look at that in the totality of the Church's teaching, and also not to take that out of context, and also not to sort of elevate it over everything else in the Gospels, but to, you know, really consider it. And yeah, that is, that is problematic for a lot of LGBT people. It, it is. I think we have to admit that. But the most important thing to share with people about the Church teaching is that God loves you. That's the most important thing. God loves you. Jesus cares for you. You're a part of the Church. You're baptized, right? And uh, and and that, that is a message that LGBT people are not hearing in the Catholic Church these days, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book.
0: My understanding is that church teaching... Catholic Church teaching s- states that same-sex marriage is wrong. Uh, am I correct in that?
1: That's correct, yeah. The only kind – well, not only that, but any sexual relations outside of marriage is wrong. So that includes premarital sex. That includes sex when you're you know, in college and high school. That includes masturbation. That includes adultery. That includes everything. So we have to see that it's not just – you know, directed at the LGBT person, but yes, that's correct. So, same-sex marriage is out of bounds.
0: So, at the risk of uh, getting you in trouble, although I, I'm pretty sure uh, Pope Francis is not going to listen to my podcast. In your view, is church teaching wrong on those issues?
1: Yeah, I'm not challenging church teaching in my book. Um, I'm not challenging church teaching on sexuality. You know, what I'm trying to do also is that is to remind people that this. Tends to be the the only thing we look at when it comes to uh, LGBT people, which makes no sense, you know. And even, I mean, uh, I, 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 with with all respect, even if, with a person as enlightened as yourself, we immediately went to that. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and that's what that's what happens in these conversations, you know. And imagine if you called me and said, "We're going to talk about ministering to college kids," mm-hmm. and we spent. Fifteen minutes talking about masturbation. You, people would say, "Why is he so focused on sex?" And yet, that for, for the happened. for the record, so I did what, not
0: bring up masturbation.
1: I know you did not, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. You know, um, you know what we do is we tend to, and we're all guilty of it. We tend to focus reflexively on sexuality, mm-hmm. right? And what I'm trying to do in the book is to say that there are many other topics that we should be talking about, right? Discrimination, violence, bullying, inclusion in ministry, other than sexuality. So that's why the book, neither the book nor I, challenges church teaching on that stuff, because that's not a topic that really is, you know, what the book's talking about.
0: Well, just to push back on that, if I may, it would seem, and again, I'm, I'm, Uh, a cisgender straight male so Mm -hmm. I'm not in a position to speak on behalf of members of the LGBT community but -hmm. it would not surprise me if whether LGBT people or allies even and I do consider myself an ally would Mm -hmm. hear what you just said and and say that if you're not going to challenge church teaching on an issue like for example same-sex marriage then the, the continuation, the existence of that of that teaching is going to be a real headwind to the church uh, entering into this relationship of respect, compassion, and sensitivity, because as long as the church says that the intimacy, the love between same-sex couples is not deserving of recognition of the same marital rights as it would be for a heterosexual couple, even if that heterosexual couple were infertile, then that's the church saying you're second-class citizens. And maybe the church will say it nicely, but it's still a message in its teachings that says they're second-class citizens. No?
1: I, yeah, I can see it. Certainly a lot of LGBT people feel that way. Um, you know, And that, that, is a, that is a common way of you know expressing that. Um, but two things. Number one, you know, the church is beginning to, you can see cardinals and bishops starting to talk about looking at the value of um, uh, LGBT love, you know, same sex love or homosexual love, however you want to say it. There are, I quote in my book, Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn of Vienna, the Archbishop of Vienna, who talks about, you know, looking at a gay couple and seeing their love as valuable, right? So I think the church is beginning to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, if people people then that, that has been a criticism of my book. But the, at the same token, you know, by the same token, I'm a Catholic priest, and I am not going to challenge church teaching. Mm-hmm. So I'm not do it. And so what we have to do, what I'm trying to do is saying, short of that, where can we create a space um, where we sort of demarcate those boundaries and say there's still parts to talk about? Because the other thing I think we need to say is this. If you want to build a bridge between two groups that have been, in a sense, at loggerheads, that is the institutional church, by that I mean the hierarchy decision makers, and the LGBT community, the place to start is not where they are the farthest apart. That is simply not the place to start. If I'm bringing two people in the room who are at daggers drawn and are really against one another, I'm not going to say, let's talk about the thing that is the most controversial. No, you, you have to find, you know, that's the point of, for, for me, building a bridge. You have to find some common ground. And what I'm trying to do with this book and this ministry is to help them meet one another. Because if you say, let's start with same-sex marriage, forget it. That end of discussion. Yeah. So I think they're, what we need to do, we're not even at that part yet. We we need to do is just get people in the room. I mean, most bishops and even some priests, well, I would say most bishops, you know, aren't aren't friendly with LGBT people. They simply don't know them. So before we even get to the most controversial topics on both sides, we have to just get them to talk.
0: So speaking of that conversation, sure. in, in addition to urging the the institutional church, to treat the LGBT community community with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. You also, in turn, urge the LGBT community to reciprocate, quote, reflecting those virtues in its own relationship with the institutional church, even when their own church at times feels like an enemy. Can you briefly talk about what that reciprocation looks like?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I want to be clear that, um, and I say this in the new version of the book, that the onus is on the Church. Mm-hmm. The onus is on the institutional Church to reach out to the LGBT community because it is the Church that has marginalized the LGBT community, not the other way around. But, by the same token, you know, what I'm inviting uh, the LGBT community into is this, you know, relationship on the other side of respect, compassion, and sensitivity. So, for example, simply being respectful to bishops— And by that, I mean just simple human respect. Treating them with respect, you know, not saying snotty things about them online, you know, as as tempting as that is. Understanding them in the complexity of their ministries. um, You know, for example, understanding that the Church, when the Church speaks, when the the Vatican speaks, they're speaking to the whole world, right? I mean, one of the things that we tend to forget is, you know, when Pope Francis says something about, gay people, which he said a lot, and a lot of people in the United States say, oh, not enough. And I always say, well, you know, imagine how that sounds in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or mm-hmm. India, right? Uh, or even Eastern Europe. You know, what what might be very mild in the United States or in Western Europe might be incendiary. I mean, even to, to use the word gay, right, is incendiary. So, so those kinds of things. So just, you know, I... So, so treating people with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And I, you know, I think that's good Christian ethics, but it's also good strategy if you want to kind of build bridges with somebody. And then finally, I say to people, look, even if you are an LGBT person who thinks that the church or the bishop or the priest is your enemy, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. So, I mean, it's whatever way you cut it. You know coming at your at the person that with whom you're in dialogue or maybe disagree with from that stance, I think is is good morality, good Christianity, and good strategy
0: shifting to a different issue, I know that From your Twitter feed, you have been outspoken in criticizing the strategies and tactics that uh, our U.S. government has taken on our southwestern border vis-a-vis refugees, particularly the uh, policies that have resulted in the separation of children from their parents. I wonder... If you had a message to Catholics who are supportive of the administration's uh, strategies and tactics, what would that message be? Read
1: the Gospel. (laughs) I mean, Jesus could not be any clearer about – read the Bible, actually. The the, the Old Testament and the New Testament could not be clear about our responsibility to strangers, that is – refugees, migrants, and aliens. We're supposed to welcome them, period. Not welcome them when it's convenient, not welcome them when we feel it's not dangerous, not welcome them when we don't have any political problems, but welcome them, period. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells the story of a man who's beaten, and two people pass him by, uh, the priest and the Levite, so two people from the man's religious tradition. And who stops to help him? The Samaritan, the hated person. So Jesus says, you know, this is who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is the person that you might consider other or a stranger or foreign. And then in, in Matthew, in this 25th chapter of Matthew, he talks about when how we will be judged. And the way we'll be judged, he says, is we're going to get up to heaven. And God's going to say, well, you know, you didn't help me when I was in jail, when I was poor, when I was starving, when I was thirsty, when I was a stranger. And as Jesus tells it, we're going to say, well, wait, wait, wait. when did I see you starving or naked or was a stranger? And Jesus says, well, anytime you saw anybody who was starving or naked or hungry or poor or a stranger, you, you saw me and you didn't treat me well. So it's it's super clear. You can't be any clearer. And I, I think that the thing that frustrates me the most is that people just kind of tend to overlook it and say, well, didn't, he didn't really mean that. Well, I don't know how much clearer he could be. You know, he's pretty clear about this stuff. So Read the Gospels. And that doesn't work. Meet these people. I worked with refugees for two years in East Africa, and they are unbelievable people. You know, they really put up with a lot, and they're just struggling, and they're doing what all of us would do, which is to try to escape a place of, uh, you know, violence in many cases and poverty, and they just want to live. And so, you know, I'd I'd ask you. And then finally, third, ask yourself what you want to tell God when you get up to heaven. You know, God's going to say, hey, how did you treat those poor people who were coming from uh, Central America? Oh, well, I voted for someone who would, you know, just shut them out. Oh, that's nice. Well, okay. Guess what? (laughs) You know, so think about how you're going to be judged.
0: So assuming that you and Pope Francis are at all representative, I think it's safe to say that that priest who passed the person by was not a Jesuit priest, but... One would hope not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, but that doesn't mean I'm, I'm. I mean, I I try to help. Uh, you know, those kinds of situations, the homeless, and you know, I live in New York, and that happens all the time. So I try not to pass people by. I always think of that person in heaven. Frankly,
0: you imagine you imagine that homeless person in heaven.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, however many years from now, where they're going to say either thanks or why didn't you help me? Or I imagine Jesus saying, why didn't you help that person? The uh-huh. heck, okay, you had five bucks in your wallet. What's the problem?
0: So here's the last question. What's your message to progressives, including but not limited to liberal Democrats, who could potentially find common cause with the church on such issues as poverty, protection of migrants, including refugees, but who find the church's stances on such issues as as abortion and same-sex marriage off-putting?
1: Well, I'd say, you know, the same that I would say for any person trying to help an organization. No one organization is going to express all of your views, right? You're, I mean, your political party probably doesn't express all of your views. And working with people of faith is essential. And also, you know, when you think about working for the Catholic Church, you know, don't just focus on same-sex marriage. Focus on Dorothy Day. Focus on Oscar Romero. Focus on Mother Teresa. Focus on John Paul. Focus on... Pope Francis, Francis of Assisi, Catherine of Siena, uh, you know, th- Thomas Aquinas, Jesus, on and on and on. You are you are entering into a great tradition that is more than just one particular issue that you know that you happen to be interested in. And I think um, it's essential to engage the church because you know that's where that's where so many people find meaning. And by shutting yourself off because you don't agree with one issue or two issues, you're really shutting yourself off from a great community that could support you, too. So that's what I'd say. Also, I'd say, you know, don't assume that Catholics are stupid, which is usually the kind of liberal, progressive, leftist, you know, oh, they're all superstitious or yeah, they have to say exactly what the Pope says. Look at someone like Dorothy Day or Oscar Romero. I mean, do you think they're stupid or benighted or naive i mean these are great social justice activists so you know and also see how they dealt with those situations where they might have disagreed with the church but yeah i'd say engage you know get to know us <laughs> we're not that bad
0: <laughs> that's it for tatter i want to thank father james martin for taking the time to talk with me If you would like more information about Father Jim or some of the people to whom he referred, then go to Tatter.Fireside.fm and find the specific page for this episode where you will find links to information, including links to Father Jim's presence on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, if you want to provide feedback on this episode of Tatter, then make a mention of Tatter on Twitter The handle is at Tatter underscore rags. Finally, if you want to provide support for Tatter, go to patreon.com slash Tatter, where all levels of support are appreciated. In any case, thank you for listening and be well.